I'd like tonight to start a, a series of Bible studies on the subject, as I've mentioned already this evening, of covenants. The message tonight is entitled, this Bible study, Our Covenant Making God. We could equally say, a God of the covenant, one that makes covenants, keeps unbreakable covenants. We read, and we shall come to it, don't need to turn to it yet, of how it says in the prophecy of Jeremiah, how God cannot possibly break the covenants that he enters into. And we will look at that shortly. So I want to think of one of these, what we call, organizing principles. When you look at the whole of the word of God, is it just a collection of books and letters? Or are the principles that go right through it, which help us to navigate? Well, I believe that's the case. And this is one of those principles. We call this covenant theology. It sounds complicated. It's not. Although it's also very deep, there are depths that we cannot possibly plumb. And it's an area of which some people have different views. But we approach this in the way that the reformers did, the way that has always been until recent years, the understood way to look at the covenants of God. Covenant theology, as opposed to what we shall cover briefly, is now called New Covenant theology, with many dangers and errors that have come in in the last 50 years. Well, we look at the definition of what this is. What is a covenant? And we shall describe that. We notice in God's word that covenants are made between people. We think, obviously, of David and Jonathan, his very close friend. They had a bond. They had a love. They had a, a sort of an agreement, verbal agreement, that they would care for one another. That's a human covenant, a personal relationship and bond. There were covenants in ancient days between kings. King Solomon had a covenant with King Hiram, a sort of covenant that said, I won't invade your country if you don't invade mine. Our armies will work together. That's a political covenant, you might call it. And there was also legal covenants. We think of the freeing of the Hebrew, the Israelite slaves. When they were released, there was an agreement, there was a covenant. And so in the ancient East, covenants and the language of covenants were very much part of daily life. We don't much live that way nowadays. In fact, I think it's true in Christian circles that people are very wary of making covenants. They think, well, I cannot possibly enter into a covenant because I might break it, because I'm a sinner. So I won't go into a covenant relationship with anyone, particularly the church, maybe in interpersonal relationships, not even with my God, because I might break it. I don't think that's right. God is a God of covenants. 
And surely he would have us as image bearers to be those that do enter into covenants carefully, as the old wedding service says, not inadvisedly, but with thought and care and with every intention of keeping that covenant. So this is a truth, covenants, which undergird the whole of the word of God, as we shall see, covenant theology. I will try not to confuse you, although this is a big subject, and this will just be an introduction tonight. The word covenant appears 300 times in the Old Testament. That, at the very least, tells us it's important. If you've never studied this, there's a big void in our understanding. In the book of Genesis, covenant, 25 times it's mentioned. In the New Testament, 30 times. I'm mentioning numbers, they don't really matter much other than to say this is important, this is a big subject. If you don't understand covenants, you're missing out on a whole piece of our understanding. Now this is a subject that questions are asked about. I don't have many questions on this topic, but it is one occasionally that people ask. It's not really complex if you understand it the traditional way, you don't go into convoluted explanations of all the different areas, eras and eras that we've been through and a different theology for each. Really there is just one understanding of how God enters covenant. So I want to look at that this evening. I want to demonstrate that when God is involved, and God makes a covenant, he will not, cannot break that covenant. If I tell you the conclusion now, really there's only two covenants in the whole word of God. If you really want to simplify it, we call them the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And I can prove to you that they run right from the beginning all the way through the word of God, and we shall illustrate it by looking at the five most famous covenants in the Old Testament. Well, let's start. Define what we mean by a covenant. A covenant is an agreement, an undertaking between two groups, two people, or could be more than two people, a relationship that is entered into where binding promises are being made. Each party will do their very best to reach a common goal that is implicit within the covenant. Now, in business life, the word is used in a very different way. If you have a piece of land, the old-fashioned term is there might be a covenant upon that piece of land. That means you can or you can't use it for particular purposes. That's a different usage. But in biblical terms, it means two parties coming together, entering into agreement where there is a great blessing if 
the covenant is kept, but there are conditions and obligations that need to be kept in order for those privileges to be given to those who are party to this relationship. So let's look at divine covenants as the Bible describes them. Now let's just pause. Just imagine for a minute if the Bible didn't have covenants. Imagine a, a medieval king. We've been thinking lots of kings, haven't we? Kings and queens recently. Imagine a medieval king and you're one of the subjects and you go to the king or the queen and you ask for some favor, some blessing. And you've got no idea how the monarch is going to respond. I don't know. Think of Henry VIII. We imagine him to be a moody king, unpredictable. How's he going to treat me? Will I be sent to prison or will I be made a knight? We don't know. The kings, they made it up as they went along. Now think of our God. Think of the way he deals with us through covenant relationships. And when we go to him in worship, in prayer, in the Christian life, we can know for certain how he will deal with us in a predictable, reliable, dependable way. That's what a covenant is, a divine covenant. Since the creation of Adam and Eve, covenants were issued, clear principles. If you do this, I will do that. If you do this, you'll have a blessing. If you do this and keep the condition, I will keep and honor the covenant. Divine covenants, of course, are initiated by God. You can't find your way to heaven. You can't make a covenant with God that he hasn't offered to you. A covenant creates a binding relationship. That's important. And unlike a contract, sometimes people say a covenant, another word is a contract. It's not just a contract. This is a living relationship. A covenant is something that moves, ebbs, flows, and lives. And the relationship that we have with God through Christ is a living covenant. And it contains blessings and obligations. One more thing. If the covenant that God offers and has entered into with either us in one covenant or with Christ in the other, if it's violated, there will be death. The death of either you or me or a substitute in the case of Christ. So these are consistent, reliable commitments and obligations. Let's think of human covenants. We thought of general covenants, divine covenants. What about human covenants that govern relationships? Let me give you a few examples. We've said 
that nowadays it's not fashionable. People don't really like marriage today. Number of marriages are going down and down. That's a covenant. It's a covenant relationship that God would have a man and a woman to enter into for life with commitments and blessings implicit if the relationship is kept. Whether it's believers or unbelievers, marriage is a blessing and honorable to all, the word of God says, and even unbelievers can know blessing through it if the obligations are kept. Let's think of another example. I hope to hold a Bible study on a number of these human covenants. Let's think of conversion, the covenant of redemption. What is conversion? I've been awakened. I feel my sin. I suddenly feel convicted. I feel guilty. All that weight of sin, like Bunyan said, bowing me down, the burden, crushing me, bending my back. What do I do? I go to Christ. There's no other I go to him and I plead with him. And he offers a covenant that I can rely upon. He says, if you put your trust in me, if you repent of your sin, if you put your faith in the finished work of Christ, then you will be forgiven. It's a covenant. You see, conversion the Christian conversion, being born again, is a covenant. Who between? Between Christ and me. I don't keep it. I can't keep it. I don't earn it. I don't contribute to it at all. But Christ does. And that covenant, if we come and plead upon it, and with it, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is a sure covenant Relationship. Think of baptism. Baptism. Covenant relationship. Well, it is. As soon as somebody has sufficient evidence that they're saved and the church can see that and acknowledge it, they should come quickly to the church and say, I'm on the Lord's side. I'm for the King." I would serve him, I would stand for him, and I wish to publicly declare my covenant relationship with Christ. And from this day forward, with God's grace and with God's help, I wish to be in covenant relationship and for it to be known. And then... In our church, and it's good, and it's right, and it's biblical, I believe, once you're baptized, you should enter another covenant relationship. A covenant relationship with the Lord's people, not just with Christ our Savior and Lord, but we enter into membership. We become part of a family, not isolated, alone, a free rider, no church good enough, no I's that have been dotted and T's crossed because the church isn't quite to my standard. 
you'll never find a church. If you wait for every I and every T to be dotted and crossed, because I tell you I'm in this church, and you're, if you're a member in this church, and it's imperfect, but it's Christ's church, and if the word of God is taught, and if there's unity, and if the people love each other, then we have an obligation to join it, to enter a covenant relationship with the Lord in his family. Then we come to the Lord's table. What's the Lord's table? Is that a covenant? Well, yes. It's where we renew our covenant. We remind ourselves, having examined ourselves, if we're in the faith, we remind ourselves of the tremendous cost of what Christ has done. We come and examine ourselves. We reunite together around that table. We remember what Christ has done. We remember we're in covenant relationship. What about worship? Yes, when we come for worship, we come to praise, to thank, to confess. We come to lift up the name of God, to hear his word preached, but we come to renew vows. We come to renew our pledge to God that we will live a holy life, that we will stand in the next week with him, not in the world, but with Christ. That's a key element of worship, the renewing of the covenant relationship and in vow that we've already made, and marriage, we've spoken about. Human covenants, are they breakable? Yes, because there's a human being involved. Will I fall? Yes. In all of those relationships I've mentioned, and covenants will slip up. Marriage? Yes, I hope not morally. With the church, will we absent ourselves from the means of grace when we didn't need to? Maybe. Shouldn't happen, but it does. Worship, will my worship sometimes be physical and not spiritual? Yes. Shouldn't be. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't enter in to these covenant relationships because they are a reflection. Let me show you how these are unbreakable. I want you to turn to Jeremiah 33. Unusually, we've not turned to the Word of God yet, but we read this carefully. Jeremiah 33, I'd like you to look at verse 19. Hopefully, as we read it, it was very clear. This is the Word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah. It's specific. The Lord, Jehovah, capitals mentioned for Lord, is speaking to, Jehovah, to Jeremiah and he says this, thus says the Lord. And he uses an illustration. He says, look at night and day. Apart from on very few occasions when Christ was on the cross, for the three hours of darkness. There is a covenant. A covenant that it will be dark at night, 
and light in the day. Yes, you've got the, the moon and the equinox and the seasons, I know that, but it's a law, it's a covenant. The Lord has entered into a covenant relationship within the earth to say that while there is life, there will be light and there will be darkness. And he goes on to say, just look at this physical illustration. And if that's kept, which it is, apart from an extraordinary supernatural exemption while Christ was on the cross, then I'll keep my covenant. Look at the covenant mentioned as the illustration. The covenant with David. This is one of the five covenants. We'll look at the other four shortly. A covenant with David. What's this about? That he should, if the cut co- is put in the negative, if the covenant of night and day is broken, then the covenant with David will be broken. Well, let's put it in the positive. The covenant with night and day won't be broken, and so my covenant that I've made with David also won't be broken. And there will be one on the throne forever. Who's that? Christ. The throne will not be wanting. It won't be lacking. Well, that's not true physically. Because David's reign ended. And eventually the kings of Israel died out. Oh no. But there is one on the throne. And David was just a picture, a signpost pointing to him. And he would reign. And it goes on to say that there won't be a need for priests anymore. And there won't be a need for sacrifices anymore. Because the sacrifice that will be made to King Jesus will be the sacrifice of the heart. Well, this covenant is unbreakable, as are all of the divine covenants. Well, as I've mentioned already, there are only two, principally, some people say three, but I narrow it to two tonight, the covenant of works, then the covenant of of grace. Sometimes people say the covenant of redemption, but just for tonight, I put that within the covenant of grace, the covenant of works, first mentioned in Genesis 2. We'll look at it shortly. It's between God and man. God kept his part. In the fall, man and woman broke our part. It said, very simply, obey, don't touch, don't go near, and you'll be blessed forever. But we did. We touched. We went near. And we ate. And so we succumbed. And so the covenant of works, because I was involved, will never take a man or woman to heaven because it was a weak covenant. But at the same time, Genesis 3, just after, the covenant of grace is spoken of in embryonic form. Now this is where people go awry. They say the covenant of grace only comes when Christ came. Not true. It's there all the way through the Old Testament. 
and it's unbreakable because the two parties that enter into this covenant are divine. God the Father, God the Son. And that covenant has been kept and it will be kept eternally. Yes, it was only in seed form in Genesis 3.15, but then the prophecies and the promises build and build and build and build. And when Christ comes, the chrysalis of the Old Testament symbols and prophecies and sacrifices and images and emblems fall away. And as it were, the butterfly flies and comes forth. It was there, but it hadn't yet been seen. That's the way we can describe it. I want to go to Hebrews chapter 8. This is perhaps one of the best examples explaining the two covenants in the whole of the word of God. If ever you're confused, come to Hebrews 8 and verses 7 to 10. There are other passages. You could go to Romans, but let's just look simply tonight at these two and show that there is two principal covenants. Hebrews 8, and we read actually from verse 7. For if that first covenant, covenant of works, had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second, the covenant of grace. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, speaking of the fulfillment of the covenant, the second covenant, the covenant of grace, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who's that? The church. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, the Moses covenant, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make, speaking of the fulfillment of the covenant of grace with the house of Israel after those days, speaking of Christ's coming, saith the Lord. This was always there from the beginning and I'll show that. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in the hearts. Two covenants side by side. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. You see, grace was always there, written potentially within the heart. That's what it's saying, law and grace. They will go side by side. When the ceremonial shell of the law has fallen away, Christ will fully be revealed. And this is where people have a problem. This is the key point tonight. People that say there is only one covenant in the Old Testament and one for the New, they teach commonly today in schools and seminaries that the Ten Commandments are no longer 
an obligation for us. We're under grace, they say, not under law. Well, let me try and show how that's not right. Grace was there in the Garden of Eden. It's now flowered, to use another illustration, rather than a butterfly. Let's look at the covenant. Come back to Genesis 2. I'll do this as very quickly as I can. We may have to summarize it, but Genesis 2, 16 and 17. We've looked at this recently on a Lord's Day morning, so I just read it. This is the covenant with Adam and Eve. What's this, works or grace? You answer in a minute. And the Lord God said, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Covenant. Something for you to do or not do. A consequence. A blessing, a curse, and death if it's broken. That's the covenant of works. There in Genesis 2, 16. Go down to Genesis 6. And let me ask you what this is as we read it. Genesis 6, 18. This is what we call the Noah or Noahic covenant. Genesis 6, 18. But with thee, Noah, will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. This is the covenant of grace. It's about the preservation of life, the salvation of souls that are drowning in sin. And the Lord says to Noah, there will be an ark, Christ. One door. You come onto the ark, you come into Christ, and you'll be saved, rescued. There's the covenant of grace in Genesis 6. A promise. You can see it again in Genesis 9 and verse 4. Genesis 9, verse 4. But flesh with the, the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. God is telling Noah what he must do. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. There'll be a need for blood from now on. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of every man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of a man. Whosoever sheddeth man's blood by man, shall his blood be shed. There's a need for a substitute, for atonement. There will be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. That's what it's saying. Verse 11, Genesis 9, 11, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off. Here's the promise. There's been a global flood once. A drowning in sin. But I won't do it again. Because I make a covenant with you. And that covenant 
spoken in Genesis 11 is between God, the Father, and God the Son. Because Christ will come. He'll shed his blood. And there will no longer need to be a judgment again until the final judgment. Because all who are in the ark, all who are under Christ and in Christ will be covered by his blood. But all who are not, there will be a global judgment again for everybody who drowns in their own sin, who are not covered by Christ. That's the Noahic covenant. Turn to Genesis 12. I'm going to rush very quickly. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. I just read this. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out. You know these words. Verse 3, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. It's a covenant of grace again. Go down to Exodus very quickly. One more. We've covered in a haphazard way all five covenants. Genesis 19, the final scripture to turn to. Genesis, uh, Exodus 19 and verse 4. Genesis, uh, Exodus 19 and verse 4. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. What's this? It's the covenant of grace. God's rescue plan has occurred in picture form. Now, therefore, is the covenant of works repeated. If ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, this is the promise to the church, then ye shall be a peculiar, a special, treasured people unto me above all people. This is the church, obviously. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. It's the church and an holy nation. That's what the church should be. Because it's still under the law. Because we should be a holy people. Set apart. Saints. Called out for God. These are the words, he says, which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. The embryonic Old Testament church. I've gone on for too long. These are Covenants, divine covenants, human covenants. If you understand this, you've got the keys to open up a major part of the whole word of God. New covenant theology says we don't need the law. The Old Testament, that's no longer important. It's subsidiary. We're under grace. We have the covenant of grace. The law isn't that important anymore. The church can be like the world and we can mimic the world. No. You're to be a holy people. A peculiar, special people. Set apart for me. These things are glorious. These are wonderful truths. Covenant 
theology. God deals with us in a way that's not haphazard and random, but dependable and reliable. And because the covenant of grace is between two members of the Godhead, it will never be broken, and we can rely utterly upon it. Let's close our